I just finished a sweater that I started knitting 30 years ago. It's me, Cindy. Let me tell you how wonderful it feels to have it done. And what's also wonderful is I still love the color. It's sort of a dusty rose and a design, which I made up myself. The likelihood of my still liking the color and shape of something I meant to knit and wear a solid three decades ago is something of a miracle when you think about it. I doubt there's anything, well, maybe that fabulous tapered black jacket, but other than that, certainly no sweaters, pants, dresses, skirts, or tops that have stood the test of time and still work or fit or appeal to me today. So really, the sweater? It's like a miracle. Adele did it. She's wildly talented and is lately diving deeply into knitting. She even has a knitting machine, actually several machines. Who knew there was such a thing? So we're talking and I tell her about this sweater that I started and never finished. I'd labored over it for months and then put it away, never to pull out again. And she said, well, bring it over. Let's finish it. And so we did. Like I said, it all smacks of a miracle to me. I'm also now flush with that got something done. Go me feeling that's been swapped out for the I'm such a loser, quitter, ball dropper mantra that played every time I thought about that half-knitted sweater over the years. The knitting hobby was a flash in the pan for me. I've had others that have gotten more prolonged devotion. There are so many creative roads to go down. I've traveled my share with varying degrees of success and satisfaction. The sweater, though, was my one and only foray into knitting. But in my crochet period, I whipped up, oh, dozens of warm winter scarves. I mastered a granny square and employed that skill to create numbers of baby blankets and even a giant queen-sized, wildly multicolored granny square blanket that is too heavy to use and too bulky to fit in the washing machine and is living out its years stored in a chest. Live and learn. The counted cross-stitch phase was really satisfying and timed with many weddings and new babies I had to finally stop when I ran out of special events and room on my walls to hang my work. That was predated by traditional embroidery, a brief, albeit very long, stretch of time. Let me explain. I saw a kit. You know, the pattern, the fabric, the colored thread, it all comes together. The sampler said, home sweet home, with these beautiful flowers edging around it and through it, and and it just charmed me. I thought, I could do that. So I bought the kit and I got started. I think I got as far as home sweet ho, when I was either no longer charmed or otherwise distracted and put it away. Then it really got put away, figuring I'd get back to it someday or not. Fast forward an entire decade later when I came across it again. Unlike the sweater, it had been long forgotten. And I looked at the design and, with renewed interest, committed to finishing it, which, yay me, I did. And when it was all done, I signed it down in the corner with my initials and the span of dates, fully admitting to the 10-year gap it took to get it done. I did stained glass for a while. Have you ever done that? That's a great experience. You're working with color and design. There's glass cutting and soldering. And when it's all done, you hang one of those babies in a window. Well, it's pretty remarkable. I have about a dozen stained glass hangings in a box. What I don't have now is enough southern-facing windows. Oh, well, maybe the next house. I finally gave up making stained glass because unless you have a dedicated space that you can have just filled with tiny glass fragments that pose no threat to anybody, the post-work cleanup can take as much time as you've just dedicated to working on the project. But if you have a workspace, you might want to consider exploring it. 
Now I stick to smaller, short-term artistic pursuits. Less work, easier to get into and get done with, completed in a short enough amount of time that I don't run the risk of a decade-long or longer hiccup and a plague of guilt. You know, watercolors, collages, pottery. I do this over at the Gather Studio. I can just go in, play, leave. They do the cleanup. It's perfect. So not much of that. I did buy a ton of beads thinking I'd do some jewelry, but I finally realized I wouldn't and sold it all in a yard sale. I have fabric paints I keep thinking I'll do something with. I have glass paint that I keep thinking I'll do something with. There is an occasional foray into paper mache, or I made one thing one time. But once you've made a paper mache anything, <laughs> what do you do with it? It's not the gift that keeps on giving, you know? Here, I made this for you. It all comes down to creating with color and sometimes a glue gun, maybe a couple of rhinestones, but no yarn anymore for me. And now, thank you, Pinterest, I've discovered these, well, I call them tiny robots, and they are, but they're also constructed of odd leftovers, like tin spice cans and metal little jello molds and spring and wire and nuts and bolts, and they are just adorable. But I'm not sure I'd ever get past the step of collecting a bunch of old rusty parts to assemble. It turns out I really wouldn't have to because there's a slew of artists turning these bits of tin and steel into a parade of wildly wonderful whimsy. And if I want one, I can probably just find one to buy. Red alert, the threat of yet another collection of things I don't need looms large on the horizon. Like the long list of evolving hobbies I've had so far, there's an equally long list of things, collections that I have housed I'm not even looking back to my childhood because when you're trying on all sorts of elements as they appear and appeal to you, that's different. But as a grown-up, when you have your own house to fill up or try to stave off, I have Pee Wee Herman figures, thanks to my godsons. They take up real estate on two shelves in the bookcase. And I have to admit, I just this week ordered Rita the Mail Lady. She's the only figure that I didn't have. And now I have the entire collection. Above them, there is an Eiffel Tower collection started by the first one from my brother as a gift for Christmas years ago. It somehow propagated. Now I have little glass ones and tin ones and metal ones and wood ones. And I even have a puzzle. In the kitchen, my stove is lined with ceramic pitchers. I have a cabinet filled with red glass and blue glass, and there are a shelf of teapots and sugar and cream sets. Sugar and cream sets are kind of fun. I have a set of pigs. They're my favorite, but I don't use the pig creamer because it always looks like it's hurling when you pour. <laughs> Some have come and gone. Some were never really meant to expand into an entire collection either. Take the unicorn phase. It all started when I wandered into one of those really cute little gift shops, shelves, you know, packed with all the little dust collectors. And there was this China unicorn laying down, looking me in the eye, sort of. It had a golden horn and I was smitten. Plus, it wasn't a pricey China unicorn, so I bought it. You put something like that in a prominent place in your house, and the next time gift giving is called for, you're unwrapping friends for said unicorn. More little dust collectors, kitchen towels, a small tapestry, a lovely stained glass hanging with a unicorn in the middle. What ended that phase, I believe, was the overabundance of unicorns that kind of took away the uniqueness of that one little china figurine. I went into cows after that. I don't remember how, but I do remember the onslaught of mugs, a doorstop, pajamas, a calendar, many, many shelf sitters made of clay, china, glass, and one tiny carved wooden cow, which is the sole remainder from that collection. Then there were bears. I know, right? You think I'd at some point stop this collective craziness, but there's something in me that tends to pick favorites, I guess. 
I remember what kicked off the bear fever. And it's funny because with all the days and stores and moments that we experience and immediately or soon after totally forget, this is an indelible memory. Of course, it took place during a cruise to Alaska, so right there you know the setting was out of the ordinary, so a lot of it was implanted way deeper into my memory. The bear isn't the only thing I remember, but for fear of getting off track, I'll just say there is a lot I can and still call up, but I won't because we only have so much time. Back to the bear. We're in a port in Ketchikan. If you ever go on a cruise to Alaska, this is one of the great ports to hit. You can visit a totem pole park. You can visit a place where they carve totem poles, and you can stroll around this little village filled with shops packed with things you will not find anywhere else, which can be crazy fun. So we're in this store, my friend Flo and I, and there's this carved bear. He's standing upright, holding a long green fish, dangling from his chest to his knees, and the look on this bear's face is just, well, forget that it's really just a carved tree trunk, endearing. This bear is like six feet tall. No, I didn't want the bear too big to get on a plane, and I didn't even bother to look at the price because I can imagine. But there was something about this bear. I, I just loved him. So after I get my fill of taking in this bear and his implied emotions, I round a corner, and what's sitting there? A small take-home version of the same bear. Same fish, but smaller. Same look of happy wonder. I'm sold or almost sold. He's $75. What? Okay. He's hand-carved, and clearly it took some time, and obviously the artist deserved to be compensated for his time and his talent. Pulling this darling little creature out of what began as just a small piece of wood, but, you know, $75? Too rich for my blood. Too crazy to spend that for something that would sit around staring at me. Plus, he's like a foot high, not too light, and I'd still have to find a place in my suitcase and probably pay extra to haul him home. So I don't buy him. And I go home with a bunch of other mementos from a pretty much perfect cruise and experience. And you think, at least in most cases, when I decide against bringing something home, I let it go. I move on. I forget about it. But this bear haunted me. For months, I keep thinking about this bear and his fish and his face, and his eyes. And then I think about the $75 and how impractical and unnecessary, but none of it can wipe out or tamp down how much I want that bear. So, the following spring, nearly an entire year later, I start to do a little research. First, I got to find the shop, one of many in Ketchikan, but one of the largest, which makes it a little easier. Then I have to look for and wonder if they still have this little guy. And they do. And I call them up and I give them my credit card and they mail this bear to me. And once we are happily reunited, I place him on the table right by my front door, assigning him the task of greeting me every time I come back home. I figure if he has a job and does it well, he's worth the money, right? Okay, that all sounds a little too left to center. But the point is, I wanted him for no functional reason, and after doing my very best to talk myself out of it and failing, I caved. So I got this fella, and I'm really happy. And then what happens? More bears follow him into the house, due mostly, I guess, to my effusiveness, my bear crush, that my friends and family translated to a love of bears in general. Years later, I've whittled down that collection, too. I still have the bear with his fish, and he still greets me at the door. And one other, this one a little metal bear with an arm out so he can hold up books on the shelf. 
And now if some particular thing catches my eye, I, I try to think it through. Would I want a herd, a flock, a whole collection of them? Unless the answer is, oh yeah, fill up my house. I just keep walking. I call that lesson learned. <laughs>